Let me shift gears now. We're going to be opening up uh, Ecclesiastes this morning, chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. You can find it between Proverbs and the Song of Solomon. And uh, what I'm wanting to talk about this morning is hope. Where do, where do you place your hope? Um, it's a good question to ask these days because I'll just confess to you, I'm a person that uh, has, has worked in the government. I've, I've worked in the military and state government, and I'm all about let's, let's get answers, let's fix things, let's um, get things better for people, right? And, uh, and so I have a tendency to um, put hope in men sometimes. And so the challenge this morning is, uh, is there any hope to be found in the wisdom or works of men? Ultimately, are there any real promise um, in the knowledge or the institutions that humans will advance apart from God? Our nation's academics would argue that, uh, hey, the hope is all in the post-secondary education in our great universities, and we have great universities. Um, They're big. They're well-funded. They have incredible football teams. They have lots of people that go there. And uh, I have a son that went just recently, not a son, but a a nephew that just recently graduated from Harvard. So the Ivy League, Yale, Stanford is not Ivy League, but Princeton, Dartmouth, all these great universities people place a lot of hope in. And then now in the science and medical community establishments, people are looking for answers there with this pandemic. And um, they're involved in our personal day-to-day life and freedoms far more than we ever thought possible two years ago. Patriots want to place their hope in nations. I'm a patriot. I'm an American. I served in the military. I believe in what the founding fathers built, but will America save the world? Will the United States influence the trajectory of the human race? It's a fair question to ask. And then a lot of people are trending towards globalism where it's... Uh, we just need to communicate better and have an overarching single world government, right? And so we know what the Bible has to say about that. But this is a whole question about is there hope in men? So as you ponder that question, let me just pray for our time. Heavenly Father, I pray that our message would be fruitful as we open up your perfect word. I pray that um, this would be your truth, Lord, that I would get out of the way, that uh, your spirit would speak to soft hearts. We would reaffirm that you are the only source of wisdom, that you are the only source of our salvation, that um, you are in complete control of history from beginning to the middle to the promised end. And so I lift this message up to you, Lord, as an act of love, obedience, and worship, and I pray that I would neither add to nor take anything away from this truth you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our Bibles... Our Christian Bibles tell us that uh, as human beings, we're uniquely made in the image of God, and as be, because we're made in God's image, we all share a common desire. We share a common desire, and it's, it's a need, actually, and I want to show you this morning that uh, this is something that's programmed into us because we're made in the image of God, and the need I'm talking about is the hunger to understand why, why. As God's image bearers, we've been given incredible intellectual capabilities, far more than any other living creature on this planet. And because this is so, um, we're compelled to ask why. We want answers. Why do men do what they do? Why does God do what he does? If you even believe in God, how can man accomplish what he desires and secure what he needs? How can we 
achieve permanence and remembrance and even rest? What are we to do? How can we make sense of death? People hunger for these kind of answers. They want the life notes, kind of like the cliff notes that I used to read in high school when I didn't read the book. Um, People want... They want the short answer. They want, tell me what to do. Tell me how to live. They want to look to others for wisdom. I think all you parents know this out there. About the time kids reach the age of five, all they can do is ask why. And uh, it's sort of uh, anybody that will, will talk to them, it's why, 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 why. And so all five of my kids did that. Um, and, you know, as... Uh, as a culture, as as people, we reward people. We reward others that uh, help us to. We think help us to answer why. Go to any bookstore and look in the self help section. Uh, all kinds of people making money on this or that theory about how to live. The Nobel Prize is probably a prime example of uh, rewarding people who are pursuing knowledge. Um, but one thing about the Nobel Prize is. Uh, it's really a, a nod to human effort and human wisdom. Um, it's become synonymous with human brilliance. Um, I, I, I'll spend a, a second here because I thought this was interesting in my research. So Alfred Nobel was a Swedish chemist and an engineer, an industrialist. He actually invented dynamite, uh, and he died in 1896. And uh, in his will, he bequeathed all of his remaining realizable assets, and it was a significant to establish five prizes, which became known as Nobel Prizes. And uh, the first one was awarded back in 1901. So this, the Nobel Prize is, is actually five prizes, and in, in what what they are to do. And this is uh, quoting out of sort of the research that I did to those who, during the preceding year, have conferred the greatest benefit to humankind. And so there's, there's science and physics and chemistry, there's physiology, there's medicine, there's literature, and then there's the famed Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, winners get rewarded greatly. They get a gold medal, they get um, like a diploma, they're called a laureate, and they get money. $1.2 million amount of money if you win a Nobel Prize. But the thing that's important to, to glean here is that it's a celebration of the quest to answer why, but it's purely from a human perspective. It's, it's rewarding human pursuit of knowledge. Um, there's really no, no gospel thinking uh, in the awarding of Nobel Prizes. And so not to say that people's good work that gets rewarded isn't you know, helping in some ways, but it's, it's, it's kind of not acknowledging that God is behind it, that the great wisdom of this world and the great good that can come of it is sourced in God and God alone. So as we uh, prepare to look at our text, consider this. The fact that we've been awarding Nobel Prizes for 120 years with not a lot of lasting improvement to the lot of mankind should be telling to us, right? We're not getting better. The last century, the 20th century, was one of the was the bloodiest, actually, of all recorded history. And so we're not trending in the right direction. And I challenge you on this day in January of 2022 to tell me that the wisdom of man is getting us anywhere. I don't think it is. Human history, in fact, is a testament to man's lack of success in figuring it out, so to say, in figuring out the creation that we find ourselves in and hungry to understand. Tens 
uh, actually thousands of years of accumulated knowledge and wisdom, humanity remains vexed. And that's a great word, vexed. And we're going to see it in our scripture in a minute. So is striving for why a fool's errand? Is it just something to be depressed about that we can't ever get there from here? Well, I want to take you on a journey through uh, Ecclesiastes, and uh, we're going to look at King Solomon, uh, who long ago went hard after the question of why and came to important and timeless conclusions that I want to share with you this morning. So let's start with the scripture uh, from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, and I'll read those. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Did you catch the conclusions? Verse 15 is the first conclusion in the form of a proverb. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And then we see down in verse 18 a second conclusion, also in the form of a proverb. And it's a summarizing conclusion. And King Solomon's earnest search for answer in his wisdom, which I would argue is representative of all of our search for wisdom, is actually a path of pain. Look at that. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So are you inspired or are you discouraged in hearing Solomon's conclusions? Is this just a big bummer? Um, well, we're going we're gonna to look at why this is here. And uh, on the face, these decrees are fatalistic and negative. And so we have to ask, why are they here? Why are they in our Bible? Why are they in the context of Ecclesiastes? Why did Solomon write these, inspired by the Holy Spirit? What is God wanting us to see here in the context of all the entire scope of Scripture? The entire Bible. What must, we dis- what must we discern using a proper hermeneutic to interpret this inspired text? What's the Holy Spirit have for us? Well, what I want to show you is two insights, two insights from this passage, that when we understand them in the context of all of Scripture, are going to drive us away from any hope in men. And, and believe me, we, we all do hope in men. Um, we're tempted to do that every day. But it's going to drive us away from that and toward the only authentic source of hope, which is the God of Scripture, the God of the Bible, the truth, God's loving grace. So the first insight is that Solomon is actually the perfect person, past, present, and future, to study human wisdom and to voice these Proverbs on God's behalf. The perfect person, past, present, and future. Nobody better. Then... 
Secondly, I want to explain that although on the face these conclusions may seem fatalistic and negative and void of hope and a bummer, when we view them rightly through a biblical lens, they're actually there to point us to God, which is inspirational. It's going to inspire us. It should ignite hope in our heart because we're getting clarity from it. We're seeing what's real and what isn't. So let's turn now to insight number one, proving that Solomon was the perfect person to study human wisdom and to speak on the topic as really the expert of the ages. We'll see that he had perfect qualifications. He had perfect credibility. He was called to do it. And, and he, he also, I'll say, he experienced a curse in doing so. So if you're taking notes, um, three C's under insight number one, Solomon's credibility calling and uh, his curse. So let's start with Solomon's credibility, his resume, if you will. Verse 12 reads, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So that establishes credibility right up front. Why? Why? Well, because we know some important things about King Solomon. He was David's son, King David's son, and heir to the throne of Israel by God's sovereign design. And uh, just as God's mighty hand had blessed and protected David as a key agent and type of Christ in his overarching plan of salvation, so too God had big plans for Solomon. God used Solomon mightily, and much of his life is recorded for us in Scripture. So 1 Kings chapter 3, if you want to flip there, describes an incredible gift that young Solomon was given by God early in his kingship over Israel. Solomon had inherited the throne from his father David, and feeling the pressures of leadership upon his youth and inexperience, he cried out to Yahweh, he's got a new job, he's feeling the weight of it, I'm young, I'm inexperienced, I'm not up to this. And so what did he do? He appealed to Yahweh, did the right thing. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? First Kings 3, 7-9. So he went pleading to God because he was out of ideas, and uh, the humility of his prayer and the, um, you know, the desire of his heart to not make this about him and to be selfless pleased God. And so God answered his request further down. Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. First Kings three eleven to twelve. So what happened here? Well, God gave Solomon something transcendent, and an incomparably wise and discerning mind was given to the young king by the sovereign of the universe. We have to believe that uh, God made. King Solomon, the smartest guy ever. The smartest guy ever. Apart from Jesus Christ, who in his humanity was the perfect model for thinking and living, Solomon, 
Scripture tells us, had the wisest and most discerning mind of any person, past, present, and future. So that includes Socrates, Plato, Albert Einstein, Stephen Hawking, pick the genius, or some genius yet to come. This we know because the Bible tells us so. The Bible tells us so. So pushing back on what is clearly stated here begins the unraveling of the inerrancy of Scripture, which we cannot do and we do not do here at Anchorage Grace Church. We believe that the Bible is inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative and gives us everything everything we need for life and doctrine. We have to have something to anchor our lives on. We have to have a foundation of truth, and it's by faith we believe that. But this is so because the Bible tells us so. We have to trust that Solomon was especially gifted, transcendently gifted, you might say, by God. And it wasn't just his intellectual gifting that made him uniquely qualified to do a deep dive into human wisdom. He was actually, because he was king, able to allocate immense resources toward the mission. Solomon was king of Israel. And like a modern-day president or monarch, he could just marshal staff and capital resources in ways other people couldn't. He could mobilize people. He could get out there and find answers. I remember working for a boss back when I was serving at the Pentagon who was uh, a go-getter and you know, one of these gifted leaders that could put together a, a very ambitious project and pull it off. And he used to say, in 1969, the United States of America put a man on the moon so we can get this little project done, Major Hatter, right? And uh, yes, sir, we can. So his point was that when, when there's intense focus on a clear mission, you have national-level resources, you've got a unified determination coming together, human beings can accomplish astonishing things. So the question becomes, who's behind it? Who's behind it? And uh, we're going to see that anything that people try to do apart from God is doomed to failure. I like to study military history, and uh, I'm amazed at the D-Day invasion. I've studied that uh, in, in school, and I've, I've studied it on my own. And the scope and scale of that military endeavor was breathtaking, but what was important, I think it's important to think about, and what I've come to in my faith is that uh, God moves through history and, and, and his outcomes are his outcomes. And so um, in war, you have two sides doing their best, and uh, one side is going to eventually win. So we have to put that in the perspective of all of Scripture in the arc of history and see God moving in history. That's, that's the point here. Um, and it's really important as we think about this going forward in 2022. There's all kinds of things that can happen. But who's in charge and who's in control? That's the great question. So Solomon has credibility measured in two categories, in his God-given intellect and in his leadership position and authorities, his kingship. Solomon's quest for lasting wisdom should have had every chance to succeed mightily, so he was credible. He had the tools. Let's look now at uh, his calling. Why was he so interested to do this? What was driving him to want to know and answer the question why? So look at the uh, first part of verse 13. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Now, this verse is telling us that Solomon was ambitious. In fact, he, he was thinking, I'm going to figure this out. I need to figure this out. 
I'm going to put a man on the moon, so to say. He applied his heart. He was all in to seek and search out. Stop there. Who knows how he actually pulled this off, but I'm envisioning, you know, Solomon even sending emissaries out to the intellectual capitals of the known world, India, Egypt, Ethiopia, Babylon, Greece, conferences, consultations, who knows? Um, But he, the point is, he was after this. He was going to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. This is so so it's large scope. It's not... It's not just the idle musings of a king who doesn't have anything better to do than to wander around his bedroom and ponder wisdom. He was after it. He was after it, and he was going to put all his effort into it. Solomon was compelled to answer his heart calling, and you get the sense that he could do nothing else or little else until he settled the matter. So Solomon, king of Israel, he's after it. So what, what's, what's compelling Solomon to do this? What's, what's his drive? Well, this isn't just a Solomon thing. He's representing all of us, I would argue, all of humanity. All of humanity. We are, it's, it's hardwired into us that, that we want to know and we want to, want to do what we feel like God wants us to do, even though we don't, most people don't acknowledge that it's God. So look at... Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and it gives, it gives um, why, it gives the beginning of why there's a consuming compulsion to gain knowledge. This is a creation story. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God himself, the creator, hardwires those of us made in his image to seek understanding, to ask why, to ponder the creation we find ourselves in and our purpose in it. We've been given a mission, and it's a gift from him. It's a gift, and with a high view of God, a biblical right view of God, we can see that pursuing understanding in the universe that he created should be the most beautiful and rewarding pursuit that we can have. In this Christian school, we like to teach um, science always in light of Scripture and God's amazing creative powers in it. And so um, God made us this way, and, and when we do it the right way, um, there's beauty in it. We just can't help but agree with and one ancient philosopher who said, a life of wisdom is the highest calling. It's hardwired into us. And even though he wasn't as smart as Solomon, the Plato uh, is quoted as saying, the task of a philosopher is purest of all. It's just like we reward the Nobel Prize. It's always been so. So think of Solomon as our champion, so to say, as uh, kind of our lead warrior in the great quest for understanding, representing all humanity, our, our federal head, so to say, in the, the fight for understanding. So if we, we see that... To be true of him, let's look at how it, how it went. How did it go for him? How did it go for him? What's going on in the second half of verse 13? Let's look at that. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Unhappy business. Well, I'm going to call that Solomon's curse, and it's all of our curse because we're all in it together as Solomon, our champion, 
So what, what's, what's going on? Why a curse? Why an unhappy business? If human beings are made in God's image and we're pursuing understanding as he made us to do, why is it an unhappy business? Well, the Bible tells us something dreadful happened with Adam and Eve after the wonderful promise that I read you from Genesis 1.26. Genesis 3 narrates the fall of creation. Adam and Eve sinned, resulting in God cursing them, Satan, and hear this, all of creation. Genesis 3.22-24 gives a horrifying picture of separation inherent in this curse. Let me read that. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The fall changed everything for Adam and Eve and for all humankind. The fall. In modern times, people scoff at this. They, they tell you Adam and Eve is a myth. It's just um, the Bible's uh, just an ancient book. It's not coherent. It doesn't make any sense. And for someone like me that made a lot of sense for a long time, all the way through high school, college, graduate school, into the Air Force, I believed in evolution because that's what I was taught. I didn't know anything about the Bible. And the whole thing of Adam and Eve, to me, was just, you know, a myth. How many people think, it, think of the world that way today? Most people do. Most people do. But I'm here to tell you, by God's grace and by his grace alone, I saw the truth. And um, now I, I see it clearly that Adam and Eve are real. The Bible is historically true. And the creation has fallen. Something is horribly wrong. Something is horribly broken. The creation is fallen. Tell me it's not in January of 2022. Well, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 20 to 22, affirms the grim reality that we sense with every look at the headlines of our day. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So Paul is affirming the fall. He's also giving a glimmer of hope, which we'll get to at the end here. But here's a critical, important reality in light of the fall. What God did not remove from humanity was the mission, the calling, the responsibility to rule over the earth as he had given to Adam and his seed. And so he didn't remove the hunger that we all feel, the hunger to understand why, the hunger to get it right, to understand, to have our why questions answered. So here's the proverbial rub. We now have mankind with a mission with a hardwiring curiosity to do that mission, but having to strive for success in a fallen creation, in a cursed creation. And this curse 
includes a separation from pure, unstained fellowship with the Creator who gave us the mission in the first place. This, in a nutshell, defines the unhappy business weighing on Solomon and all of us until such time as God redeems all of his creation. One writer said it this way, the thing for which we were created becomes intolerable when pursued under the curse and in the shadow of death, yet God has not taken away the task. So it's no surprise that Solomon did not see success in his large scope project to search out My emphasis here, by human wisdom, all that is done under heaven. He did not end up successful. He did not end up on the moon here, so to say. He just ended up with a giant question mark. And this tells us, in verse 14, affirming that, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving After the wind, he gave it it all. Everything under the sun means nothing, no stone was left unturned. No area of inquiry was left lacking. And his coming conclusions are final because there's nothing more to investigate. At the same time, the same idea is stated emphatically in verse 16 where Solomon is reinforcing his qualification and effort and he's concluding I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And then verse 17 tells us Solomon even put effort into searching the opposites of wisdom, madness and folly, in order to land his conclusions with finality. He wanted to say, case closed. He rigorously and exhaustively went after it, as one writer put it. And what were his conclusions? Verse 14 and verse 17 say essentially the same things. All is vanity and a striving after the wind. So a word study of the original Hebrew and also of the Greek translations of the Hebrew give us a sense of Solomon's conclusions to just be futility. It's just the weight is just not relieved. Wasted effort, expending energy to catch the uncatchable. The wisdom sought is the wind. It's unseen, unquantifiable, un containable. And even if it's caught in some fashion, it can't be held or harnessed or tamed. Important conclusion. So we've looked at insight number one, that Solomon really is the perfect person, and we have to stand on his credibility, his calling, and his experience of how he was cursed and looking everywhere but to God on this. And so we might say he's the goat on wisdom, the greatest of all time. The greatest of all time. So let's look now at insight number two. And as we do so, just just, uh, remember, remember Solomon's credibility. So here it is, my second insight. Although on their face the Proverbs are fatalistic and negative, when we view them through the grid of Scripture, through God's overarching redemption plan through a belief in the attributes of God, through our understanding of who he is and how he rules his universe given to us in scripture, these proverbs are going to tell us where to look. They're going to be a dead end of sorts and they're going to inspire us because they tell us to look in the right direction and it should ignite hope in our heart. So Solomon's concluding proverb reads, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. 
I believe this proverb, and I think it's clear that it's, it, it's basically utterly undoing any hope of human beings solving the great difficulties of, of existence, much less achieving any form of utopia on earth in human strength. So um, if you look at the trajectory of history, great nations have risen and fallen. Um, there have been wars. There have been all sorts of efforts to have people come together and create utopia. And what we're up against now in our culture is a lot of people loudly arguing that we can do this if we all just agree. And if you don't agree with me, I'm, I'm going to make it hard on you. That's where we're at. So one writer explained human effort born with, from human wisdom as, as effort in the horizontal and terrestrial. And I would argue most people are firmly looking for answers in the horizontal and the terrestrial. But we know from Scripture that because of the fall, men in this world are cursed. And so no horizontal work is going to succeed at anything apart from God's sovereign will and power. We have to have a high view of God and a very low view of ourselves. That's what Scripture explains is the human condition. High view of God, low view of ourselves. Moreover, God has a sovereign plan for the trajectory of history, as I've said. And this trajectory is right on script, right on time, just as perfectly planned. Everything is working out just as God sovereignly desires it and has planned it. As Christians, we believe that. We believe that. But it is tempting to go, I'm pretty smart. I might get elected to office. I might be able to jump in and change the trajectory. I might be able to delay whatever God is doing, I might be able to solve this and surprise God. That's not the way we're supposed to think. High view of God, low view of man. People are placing their hope in science and technology in amazing ways, and a lot of it is science and technology yet to be discovered. They'll say, well, we're going we're gonna to figure out energy in ways that we just haven't figured out yet, so let's just rest in that. More and more people are placing their hope in increasingly bizarre places, nonsensical places. There's a lot of stuff that you can go and read about how people are saying it's all extraterrestrials. It's, uh, it's beings from other planets, you know, that somehow have solved physics in ways that we haven't figured out yet. And we're here and we'll travel back here and they're going to give us all the answers we need. Think about that for a minute. There's all kinds of holes in that, and that takes way more faith than believing in the God of Scripture. Um, But it's out there, and it's real. So people create gods, little g, of all kinds, in a vain effort to do what? Make straight what is crooked and to add to what is lacking. And Solomon, the goat, greatest of all time, is saying it's not going to happen in the horizontal and terrestrial realm. It's just not going to happen. Another response to people's frustration as they try to figure out the world and solve the world is hopelessness, hopelessness. So we've had a pandemic for two years. We've had a wild election a couple years ago. We've got another one coming up next fall. Um, I, as a military guy, I, I look at the trends and the wars and rumors of wars. We've got Ukraine, Taiwan disaster in Afghanistan, natural disasters, you name it. And so people, they want this stuff fixed. And we've got plenty of people standing on pulpits all over the place 
political pulpit saying, I can fix it for you. I can fix it for you. And so we have to be careful about that, but lots and lots of people are losing faith in those that are saying, I can fix it for you. And so they're descending into what I call the isms. They're losing hope, um, and they're becoming more and more selfish. They say, Who, it just doesn't matter. I'm going to be an existentialist. It doesn't matter. I'm going to do what I want uh, because it's just um, it's the here and the now, and who cares? Or they're falling into nihilism where nothing means anything. So what Solomon is communicating to all who will listen in chasing understanding in the horizontal and terrestrial is this. It's like coming to a dead-end sign in a road. Solomon is basically saying, don't go any further, go a different direction. Hold on to that thought for a second. As we look at uh, proverb number two that says, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Here again, Solomon is talking about man's wisdom, man's knowledge, and he's building on proverb number one, and he, he's, he's more pointedly calling out the futility of hoping in the human mind. The human mind. If Proverb 1, what is crooked cannot be made straight, speaks to futility and external solutions, that saviors are going to come to us in time and space from a yet unknown God realm, again, little g. Proverb 2, for in much wisdom in is much vexation, is talking about the futility of believing there can be hope in new human thought, fresh ideas, new revelations, enlightened discourse underpinning new political solutions. I'm not saying that uh, the, pursuit of wis- the pursuit of knowledge and understanding is, is not, we, we can't just, you know, sort of not do what we're programmed to do. We just have to do it in the context of truth. And we have to be really careful about what I'll call progressive ideas, which is, hey, I've got an idea that's going to solve everything, and Solomon is going to tell us there's nothing new under the sun. So Solomon, again, is saying, be careful about False hopes heard in uh, lofty inauguration speeches. Be careful about the promises from the universities. Be careful about the global solutions and the peace treaties. Be careful about everything found in the horizontal and terrestrial. I found this from a commentator, William Brown. The universe, in effect, is hopelessly stubborn. It cannot be molded to correspond to any human models of moral sense and order. So if you look at the original Hebrew, vexation can also mean anger and sorrow can also mean pain. So do we see angry people in pain today? We certainly do. Do we see lots of people trying to escape from reality in any way possible? Just, just forget about life for a while and sexual perversion and drugs and alcohol, even giving themselves to virtual realities now. So I guess if if you don't like the life you have now, you can create one in the virtual world and go live that. That's where we're trending. So Solomon is flashing the dead end sign. Go a different direction. Or your hope will dissolve into anger and pain. That's what he's telling us. So how do we go from fatalism and negativity and get to inspiration and hope ignited? What direction do we go when we see the flashing stop sign? Go a different direction. Well, we look up. We look up. We look away from the horizontal and the terrestrial, and we look to the Creator, the God of Scripture. Our thinking needs to shift from horizontal and terrestrial to vertical and worshipful. 
Proverbs 9.10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So when we hit the dead end, it's not hopeless. It's clear. It's giving us clarity. There is inspiration and hope in reaching the dead end. It can be a good thing. Reaching the end of ourselves can actually be the best thing that ever happened to us. That's how I came to faith. I reached the dead end of myself. I think it's true of a lot of us, right? How God works in circumstances to have basically the bottom fall out, and we've got to hit all the way down to the bottom of the pit, and then suddenly we go, i got nothing. I'm broken and contrite. Save me, Lord. Solomon is pointing us in that direction. The realization of horizontal and terrestrial hopelessness can, in fact, be a spark to find the real hope, but only if you go the right direction, only if you go after God and not into the more horizontal and and terrestrial or into escape behavior. Solomon makes a like point in Proverbs 9.10, later in Ecclesiastes, uh, like uh, a like point of Proverbs 9.10, later in Ecclesiastes, it's uh, Ecclesiastes 8, 12 to 13. He says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him. And then he goes on to say, But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So life has been hard since the fall, and it surely remains hard today. Fallen creation, where we as men can never fully know what eternal God is doing or why. High view of God, low view of man. The Ecclesiastes message is that we need to run to God. We need to trust and surrender God even when we're suffering. Despite the seeming futility involved in existence, so says Ecclesiastes, the wise saint fears God, accepts his lot in the fallen creation, understands that God is doing things that we don't fully understand, and then we're to live our lives. We're to live our lives as one made in his image. And when we try to pursue things that are a dead end, we have to run back to God. We have to look up to God, so to say. Do not seek to mitigate or ignore the consequences of the fall. Fear God. Fear God. An appropriate fear of God will drive you to his mercy and grace, to faith, to his word, which is something that the Old Testament saint could not fully comprehend the way we can. Solomon's temporal audience at the day, they didn't really know the cross of Christ. They knew the, proph- they knew the prophecies as they'd been recorded. But he's looking forward, and so he was uh, in, a, in a limited place. But as 21st century believers... We live on this side of the cross, so we know much more than the Old Testament saint did. And even as the fallen creation ever groans, we know so much more about God's amazing grace. Do we not? Because Christ came into the world to suffer and to die for the problem that we all share, which is sin. And the Old Testament saint could only look forward to that. We can look back to it. We live under the new covenant of grace with God the Holy Spirit literally dwelling Our hearts, indwelling in our hearts. It's a promise. We're sealed by the Spirit and we're indwelled with the Spirit under the new covenant of grace. So how much more confident and assured should we be? Not assured in any hope for this sinking ship that we're on, that is the present world, but in the eternal hope of Christ and in the eternal hope for our ultimate redemption. That's where God wants us to be. 
Solomon began his wisdom hunt as a young man when he, as we read about earlier in 1 Kings, the Christian's wisdom hunt is talked about in James. If you want to flip over there, James chapter 1, verse 5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I think that's cool. That's interesting. The method of seeking wisdom is the same way Solomon received wisdom. He asked God. Unfettered by hubris, young Solomon asked for help from a place of acknowledgement in his own weakness. And he aligned his desires with those of God, faithful, unselfish service to others. And then he asked for a supply of wisdom. And finally, he humbly concluded the source and provider of all wisdom is God. There is simply no other place to go. Later in James, verses 2 to 5, we hear about the perspective of trusting God and his wisdom and what that looks like in suffering. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Later in Romans 8, Paul looks back to the fall and, and then forward to, re, to the redemption of the elect. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. A right ask for wisdom follows a correct understanding of suffering. So suffering, if you think about it, suffering really has no meaning at all apart from Christ. It's just suffering. It's just hopeless suffering. But suffering has profound meaning for those who are believers, for those who are in Christ. Suffering is part of our sanctification. It's part of God making us more like Christ. And so it's important. It gives meaning to it. And that should be a really good word for us today, shouldn't it? I mean, we have suffering, (laughs) and we need an explanation for it, and the gospel gives us a perfect explanation for what suffering is. And then we band together, we pray for one another, we lift each each other up, and and we, we find fellowship in suffering, in truth. So we don't want to ever misuse the wisdom God gives us, We just want to pursue it because it's godly wisdom. So let me just summarize what we've covered. We've heard from the so-called greatest of all time, the greatest thinker on human wisdom, Solomon. He answered God's call and plumbed the depths of human wisdom with credibility in an answer to a calling in the context of the fall of creation. And he was inspired by the Spirit of God to write And he gave us two concluding Proverbs that point us to God, point us to the God of our Bibles as the single source of wisdom and hope for life, this life and for all of eternity. So how do we make this practical? How do we make this practical on the 16th of January, 2022? Well, I'll just give you kind of three takeaways, three applications, three action items, so to say. Number one... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have any question about your salvation, 
about whether you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, according to God's inerrant word alone, to the glory of God alone. Get that straight today. Get that straight today. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Let God soften your heart. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Any of us will meet with you, any pastor or elder, pray with you. We'll answer any questions you have. Get that right today. Number two, adjust your temporal expectations about what is happening today in this life and about what may happen in the future. When things are going bad, it's easy to futurize. And what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? I do that. We're all susceptible to that. At some point, we just have to say, what if? God's still on his throne. He's still on his throne. He's completely in control. The one question you want to answer is, do I believe? And the rest of it really won't matter in eternity. Adjust your expectations. Any and all human ventures that depend on men operating in the horizontal and terrestrial, apart from God's truth and blessing, are doomed to fail. They're not going to work. We still want to pray for our leaders. We still want Christians to run for office. We still want to vote our conscience. We still want to speak the truth in love always. But do not expect government at any level to fix the unfixable. It won't happen. Number three, remember that as Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So commit to share your faith. Commit to share your faith. God saves souls through preaching, teaching, and through providential conversations. You may not be asked to preach or to teach, but you do have lots of opportunities to share the love of Christ in your everyday life conversations. And it should be compelling to you now more than ever as people are struggling, people are upended with the politics of our nation, with the pandemic, with who knows what's going to happen in 2022. Everybody thought, oh no, 2020, that can never happen again. And then we got 2021 and everyone said, oh no, we can't have that again. How are we doing so far in 2022? You have lots of opportunities to share the love of Christ in your everyday life conversations. So as I finish here, I just want to share something with you that I found. Um, it's, it was just kind of a sad realization. Um, I have a, like I said, I have a nephew that went to Harvard and just graduated from there. And I don't want to just disparage Harvard across the board, but I do think Harvard University is representative of much that's gone wrong and it's continuing to go wrong in our culture where people are just rejecting the truth of God. They're rejecting their roots Altogether, Harvard was actually built as a, uh, uh, a seminary that was to launch pastors and preachers and missionaries. Um, I think most people know that, but this great and famous institution that is representative of knowledge in our culture is almost going out of their way to reject um, God and God's truth in the Bible, especially the LGBTQ agenda. So consider today's teaching as I, as I read you this. This is uh, you know, something that came from uh, a Puritan speaker who was in the moment. And so what was happening was there were about 17,000 Puritans migrating to New England, New England in 1636. And so Harvard was founded in anticipation of the need of training clergy for the new commonwealth. And it was to be a church in the wilderness, 
So here's the quote. After God had carried us safe to New England and we had built our houses, provided necessaries for our livelihood, reared convenient places for God's worship, and settled the civil government, one of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and to perpetuate it to posterity. Dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. And as we were thinking and consulting how to effect this great work, it pleased God to stir up the heart of one Mr. Harvard, a godly gentleman and a lover of learning, then living amongst us to give one half of his estate, about 1,700 pounds back then, which is a lot, toward the erecting of a college and all his library. And then people started to pile on and give and so was birthed Harvard College. The college was by common consent appointed to be at Cambridge and is called, according to the name of the first founder, Harvard College. Beautiful beginning, but I surfed around on Harvard's website um, this past week and uh, it's, it's, a, it's scary. So they are hard after the LGBTQ plus agenda, which um, we don't hold that to be any, any truth in that at all here at Anchorage Christ Church. So we believe in God's truth, and we love people, and we are compassionate and caring, and we want people to come into the kingdom of God. And we don't think that it's through that path. So we need to be praying to share our faith, even as our universities are rejecting God wholesale. So let's uh, now, as we end, ask God for his wisdom to overwhelm us as we go out into this world And to spread the gospel as God has called us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the scripture. Thank you for Solomon, for Ecclesiastes. Thank you for his gifting. Thank you for his inspiration to write. Thank you how it shows there is no hope in men. There is no hope in human wisdom. There is no hope in the horizontal and terrestrial. And that when we see this, it's a blessing. It's a blessing of clarity and that we can look up, we can see you, the God of the universe, who is in control of everything and is not aloof and away and impossible to see and impossible to experience by the gospel, Lord, we can be right with you. The second member of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ, came and lived as a human, fully human, fully God, and it's amazing. And so you don't, you want us to know you, you want us to have faith in you. You want us to see that everything is under your care and charge. So help us just believe that and see that today. In Jesus' holy and perfect name we pray.